Good morning, friends. Well, we're going to continue where we left off in the book of Genesis, chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kirath Araba. That is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. And then you keep reading this chapter and Abraham buys some land to bury his beloved wife, Sarah. If you recall, God had promised Abraham a number of things, but one of the very important promises was that this land of promise would be his. It would belong to him and his offspring. And now, after a very long time of walking with God, for the first time, he actually owns a piece of this promised land. And it's just a gravesite. It's just a tomb. That's all he ever owns. And a couple chapters later, he's also going to die and be buried in the same tomb. The only thing he owns in the promised land is a grave. And that means something. And we'll unpack that. And also in this small section, he says to the Hittites, whom he buys this land from, he says, I'm a stranger and a foreigner. That's quoted in the book of Hebrews. That means something also. It means something significant. Abraham dies not having received yet what was promised to him. But he greeted it from afar. We, we read that last week when Cheryl preached. A stranger and a foreigner not having received what was promised but seeing it from afar. Well, as I considered that, I can't even tell you why, to be honest. I can't even tell you why this certain person came to mind who I knew almost nothing about. Someone who died a very long time ago. Came to mind on Monday, and on Mondays I've learned to let my mind wander because I've learned that that's just how God does what he does. I let my mind wander and I started thinking about this individual and I started reading his story. Oh, and I went deep into a rabbit hole and I just had to trust, God, you have to be with me in this. There's got to be a reason why I'm studying this right now. I went through a similar journey about a month ago, if you guys recall. Regardless, um, so... Uh, I've mentioned before Jonathan Edwards. He, uh, we're not talking about him today, by the way. But, uh, well, Jonathan Edwards is known as America's greatest theologian. Sure. 
definitely. But what's interesting is that his most read work, he wrote a lot of stuff, very prolific, but his most read work is not a theological treatise. It's not, I mean, it is, but it's not, it's not his theological writings. Actually, his most read work is a story that he curated, a diary of someone he came to know by the name of David Brainerd. And, uh, well, anyways, he actually, he opens with this. Jonathan Edwards wrote in 1749, when he published this, he says, There are two ways of recommending true religion and virtue in the world which God has made use of. The one is by doctrine and precept, the other by instance and example. And he's going to take this diary of David Brainerd, and he's going to curate it, and he's going to tell this story. And what we're going to see is in this story, we're going to see what it means to be a stranger and a foreigner. Like Abraham said, I'm a stranger and a foreigner. And then 2,000 years later, the book of Hebrews says these people were strangers and foreigners. And there's a sense in which we've been called to this in Christ. We're going to see that through the life of David Brainerd, and I trust God is going to work today. Father God, do that work today. Exceed any expectations we have. Let your divine presence be felt and speak to us, and let us worship you in spirit and truth. Amen. Okay, on 1718, in Connecticut, New England, this is before America as we know it, you know, existed, um, David Brainerd was born. His dad died when he was nine, his mother died when he was 14, and in the beginning of his diary, this is what he wrote. I was, from my youth, somewhat sober and inclined to melancholy, but do not remember anything of conviction of sin worthy of remark till I was, I believe, about seven or eight years of age. Then I became concerned for my soul and terrified at the thoughts of death and was driven to the performance of religious duties. But it appeared a melancholy business that destroyed my eagerness for play. Let me break down what he just said here. He said from his youth, he remembers that he was prone to, to melancholy, which is what we would call depression. And actually, in an in a earlier days of my life, I got myself a psychology degree. And anyone who, with modern ears and a modern mind, who would read David Brainerd's story would say that this is a man who certainly would be diagnosed with a, um, a mental health condition that we would call depression or perhaps uh, manic depression, um, uh, bipolar perhaps. Yeah, it would definitely fit that bill. But what you're going to see is that there is more to the story than that. There's more going on in this man's life than simply mental illness, which, again, is a very real thing, and we touched on that last week in the beginning of the service. Um, 
But yeah, he says he was melancholy from the time that he was young. But uh, around the age of seven or eight, he started to sense a conviction of sin, and he became concerned for his soul, terrified of the thoughts of death and, and judgment. Um, but he says... Uh, He was driven to religion, but he hated it, basically. That was melancholy for him, and it, and it ruined his sense of play. So religion took the fun out of life for him, is what he said. He didn't like it. And so this was the beginning of what I call a dead religion, where you do religion, you don't really want to, you don't really like it, there's nothing happy about it, but it's the right thing to do. And for many people, it's the only religion they know. And for... The years that followed, this was the only religion that David Brainerd knew. He says, I imagined that I did dedicate myself to the Lord. He thought that he was doing religion the right way. Sometime in the beginning of winter, 1738, it pleased God one Sabbath morning as I was walking out for secret duties to give me a sudden sense of my danger and the wrath of God that I stood amazed and my former good frames presently vanished from the view which I had of my sin and vileness. So he had a moment where he realized, maybe I'm not that good of a person. Uh-oh, uh, sin, the awareness of sin became very real to him. Oh, no. Uh, but what did he do about this? He did not yet know the way of salvation, so instead what he did was he kind of started getting more serious about this business of religion that he didn't particularly like. He started praying more and doing religious things. This is what he writes. Still, I had a secret hope of recommending myself to God by my religious duties. I had a secret hope that just enough religious effort on my part was going to make God pleased with me. You see, he's trying to save himself in this way. In February 1739, I set apart a day for secret fasting and prayer and spent the day in almost incessant cries to God for mercy that he would open my eyes to see the evil of my sin and the way of life by Jesus Christ. God was pleased that day to make considerable discoveries of my heart for me. So far, so good. But still, I trusted in all the duties I performed. Though there was no manner of goodness in them, there being in them no respect to the glory of God. So what he was saying is, he's starting to understand, like he's starting to pray, God, show me myself, show me my sin, very good. And as God would kind of reveal his sin, he still trusted in his abilities to do the religious stuff that was gonna make God pleased with him. He's still trying to save himself through efforts and good deeds and religion. He is still caught in what I would call dead, empty religion. And at this point, he actually wrote, this is still the intro to his diary, he wrote that he secretly in his heart harbored opposition to God. And he explains that. He said he hated the law of God with its holy demands. You see, he was enlightened and he understood that the rules of God, the Ten Commandments and such, were not just external rules of how someone should behave, but they were actually commands for our heart. And he understood that on a heart level, the, the law was too hard. It was too high. He wasn't able to do it. He didn't like that God required holiness from his people. 
He didn't like that God was holy and had a standard of holiness. He didn't like that. Uh, he also said that he hated that faith alone was the requirement. So he understood the gospel in that sense. The gospel is effort, good deeds won't actually save you. But what will save you is a trust and a faith in a savior. That alone. And he said he didn't like that. People who think highly of their ability to do good things and live a good life often don't like that. That's just something you see all over the Bible and something I've discovered in life. There's something in us. This is the sinful nature. We want to live apart from God. Leave me alone. I'll be a good person over here, so just leave me alone. I don't want you in my heart. I don't want to know your holiness. I don't want to walk with you. I'd rather live my own life on my own terms, but don't worry. I'll be a good person. I'll follow your religious duties, but just leave me alone. That's empty, dead religion, and that's what what David Brainerd was wrestling with. He didn't want God in his heart. Something else he says that he hated in his heart was the sovereignty of God. He saw in the scriptures that God has the power to save who he wants and curse who he wants. God has the power to save whoever he wants, and it is only by his sovereign power that anyone would receive salvation. He saw this, and he didn't like that God was in complete control. These are all things that um, we could unpack more of, but for the sake of time, let's just read his own words. It was the sight of truth concerning myself, truth respecting my state as a creature fallen and alienated from God from which my soul shrank away. So this acknowledgement that he was a sinner in need of salvation, he saw it every now and then. He tasted it, but he wouldn't let that truth really penetrate. Whenever that truth became pressed upon him, you're a sinner and you need a savior, he would push it away. And the way he would push it away is, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to be a good person. It's, it's, very, it's very normal. One morning, while I was walking in a solitary place as usual, I at once saw that all my efforts and projects to uh, effort or procure deliverance and salvation for myself were utterly in vain. I was brought quite to a stand as finding myself totally lost. I had thought many times before that the difficulties in my way were very great, but now I saw in another and very different light that it was forever impossible for me to do anything toward helping or delivering myself. I saw that self-interest had led me to pray and that I had never once prayed from any respect to the glory of God. My religious efforts and good deeds were not performed from any love or regard to God. The whole of my efforts were nothing but self-worship and a horrid abuse of God. July 12th, 1739, I continued, as I remember, in this state of mind from Friday morning till the Sabbath evening following when I was walking again in the same solitary place where I was brought to see myself lost and helpless as before mentioned. Here, in a mournful, melancholy state, I was attempting to pray but found no heart to engage in prayer or any other duty as if there was nothing in heaven or earth could make me happy. 
Nothing can make me happy. Then, as I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I had never before, nor anything which had the least resemblance of it. I stood still, wondered, and admired. I knew that I had never had seen before anything comparable to it for excellency and beauty. It was wildly different from all the conceptions that I ever had of God or things divine. My soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being, and I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was captivated and delighted with the excellency, loveliness, greatness, and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in him. You see what changed? He was doing religion. He didn't really like it. He didn't really like the idea that God was God. But what changed is he got a glimpse of God and now his heart loved it. Religion wasn't something that was just a burden. He saw the goodness of God. His eyes were open. He says more, at this time the way of salvation opened to me with such infinite wisdom, suitableness, and excellency that I wondered... I should ever think of any way of salvation. I, I wondered that I should think that I could have thought of any other way of salvation. I was amazed that I had not dropped my own efforts and complied with this lovely, blessed, and an excellent way before. I wondered that all the world did not see and comply with this way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. He's saying, why did I resist this so much? Why did I insist on trying to make my own way and be a good person when there was something so enjoyable, so satisfying that I could just drink of and have? And in the same vein, he says, the whole world should know about this. And this is going to be something that's going to drive him. The year is 1739. And I'll tell you in advance, David Brainerd is going to live eight more years. And he's going to die at the age of 29. And we're going, to see, we're going to see the life of a man who would become a stranger and a foreigner in the land. Um, so, again, it's 1739, and David Brainerd is admitted into Yale Seminary. But shortly afterwards, he's expelled Time to get into the story of that, but basically he he was talking to one of his friends and he made a comment that one of the professors had about as much grace as a wooden chair. And uh, someone else overheard him say that, reported him, and he was expelled for it. That might seem kind of harsh, but you have to understand at the time there was conflict. That was a bigger conflict in the land because the Great Awakening had begun. And the Great Awakening was a time of spiritual fervor that was spreading across the land. And it was controversial. It was controversial because the old and more formal traditional religion did not like this new spiritual fervor. And um, people were pretty much separated into what was called old lights and new lights. And... Yale, uh, the leadership at Yale kind of felt threatened 
What it seems to me, anyway, is the leadership at Yale felt threatened by the passion of this young man. And, um, well, I'm just going to leave that alone and not go down that too much. And perhaps uh, he did sin by gossiping about his professor. Maybe not. I don't know. But regardless, he was expelled. And over the next uh, few years, he tried numerous times to get back into Yale, to get back into seminary, and he was rejected each time. At the same time, as you read his diary at this point, uh, two things become immediately clear. This is a man who very regularly experienced low, low, low lows and high, high, high highs. So many times, so many times he would talk about the agony The agony of being faced with the sin that still dwelled inside of him. He would go out to pray and he would feel nothing. He would feel separated from God. He would feel in torment. The words are so descriptive and intense and so common. This would happen to him. <laughs> what well, seems like two to three times a week. And at the same time, Two to three times a week, he would write about seeking God and finding God and experience what could only be described as, as ecstasies, um, joy unspeakable, deep, deep comfort and awe. And this would happen again and again. And once more, a modern reader might say that he has what you would call rapid cycling uh, bipolar, rapid cycling manic depressive disorder. Perhaps, but I'm going to tell you that that doesn't fully explain what's going on with David Brainerd, and I'll tell you why. If it was just him and these high, high highs and the low, low lows that he experienced were just him, then, then you could explain it that way. But what you're going to see as he begins his ministry is this same effect falls upon his hearers. And... And you're going you're to see that as we get a little farther. And it really is a mark of the Great Awakening. It really is a mark of, of revival. And that I'll explain more later. So, uh, in 1743, four years after his conversion, he is appointed as a missionary and in early 1744, he leaves to go among the indigenous people of Delaware. In his writings, he calls them Indians. It's just a, you know, a term that was used. But he was a missionary to the Native Americans. Um, at first, it was pretty difficult. He didn't speak their language. He tried to learn but he would preach to them through an interpreter. And that was hard um, because, um, you know, the, the passions and such that he felt, it was hard to have that conveyed through, through someone who wasn't a Christian, right? But miraculously, the first person he baptized, the first convert was his interpreter. 
and he writes about how that changed everything. Then his interpreter no longer just interpreted with just empty translations, but he was able to speak it. Um, he was able to understand the concepts and speak from an overflowed heart. His interpreter would feel the things that David would feel, and his interpreter would pour them out on the people. Um, and some of the things that he wrote about then, so you have a, a few years then. So again, he became a missionary to the indigenous people really just three, four years before he died. So there's not a lot there. But he, there's a lot of writing. There's a lot of, I mean, he kept a diary. Most days he wrote something in it. Um, and a lot of it I can relate with as a person in ministry, right? As a preacher, pastor, a lot of it I can relate with. But I'll be honest, a lot of it I can't. I'll show you what I mean. August 8th, 1745. Um, he describes preaching to a group of about 65 indigenous people. And he feels like God is helping him with his sermon. But something that happens after the sermon, he then writes about. Um, he says he was talking to people individually. And then, the power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like a mighty rushing wind and with an astonishing energy bore down all before it. I stood amazed at the influence which seized the audience almost universally and could compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty storm or swelling flood that with its insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before it whatever is in its way. Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together and scarcely one was able to withstand the shock of this surprising operation. He says that suddenly after the sermon, he's talking to people individually, everyone was struck and bowed down with what he says he calls concern. Now that word, that word has to show up probably 300 times in his descriptions of his ministry the word concern. And this again, um, well, well, to understand what I mean by that, I'll, I'll read a couple other examples from his writings. Old men and women who had been drunken wretches for many years and some little children not more than six or seven years of age appeared in distress for their souls as well as persons of middle age. It was apparent that these children, some of them at some of them, at least, were not merely frightened with seeing the general concern, but were made sensible of their danger, the badness of their hearts, and their misery without Christ, as some of them expressed it. The most stubborn hearts were now obliged to bow. I, I'm just going to keep reading, and maybe you'll get more of a sense of why he this word concern keeps showing up. December 16th, 1745. There was much affection and concern in the assembly. And especially one woman appeared in great distress for her soul. She was brought to such an agony in seeking after Christ that the sweat ran off her face for a considerable time together. 
although the evening was very cold. And her bitter cries were the most affecting indication of the inward anguish of her heart. She's, she's crying out. December 29th, 1745. After public worship was over, I went to my house proposing to preach again after a short season of intermission. But they soon came in, one after another, with tears in their eyes, to know what they should do to be saved. And the divine spirit, in such a manner, set home upon their hearts what I spoke to them, that the house was soon filled with cries and groans. They all flocked together upon this occasion, and those whom I had reason to think in a crisis state were almost universally seized with concern for their souls. December 30th, 1745, was visited by four or five young persons under concern for their souls, most of whom were very lately awakened. They wept much while I discussed discoursed with them, and endeavored to press upon them the necessity of flying to Christ without delay for salvation. So it's not hard to see what he means by concern. It's a concern. It's the same concern that he wrestled with years prior, right? The same concern of, I, I'm a sinner, and that's a real problem. I, I, again, it's, that word shows up so many times in stories like this, so many times of people falling down, crying out, what must I do to be saved? It's, it's a very low lows, isn't it? This is why I say the things he went through, it doesn't really, can't quite explain it by mental illness. I would say that it is a mark of revival. And I say that because anyone who studied the Great Awakening knows this wasn't limited to David Brainerd's ministry. This phenomenon of people falling down, crying out, pressed upon with a great sense of concern for their souls was a mark of the time. And not just the time of the Great Awakening. If you read your Bible, it was a mark of the first Great Awakening. Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday, by the way, where we celebrate what happened at Pentecost. When the Spirit came down with power, the Spirit whom Jesus said would convict the world of sin and righteousness. The Spirit that would do this very thing. The Spirit fell down and it did that very thing. And people were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? Concern. I'm going to just be, be a little open a little bit. Um, I have known this concern. I've been deeply moved by this concern. Is it possible, possible to be a Christian and to have never known this concern? I'll be honest, I don't know. I suppose God can work in different people different ways if he so desires. But it does seem to me that concern for one's salvation, for one's eternal destiny, concern about sin and judgment does seem to me to be the path to life. Being concerned and understanding. What did Jesus say? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. To me, it makes sense that thirst comes before drinking. Um, and I was intrigued by this phenomenon that he wrote about, concern, concern, concern. And I found something very interesting in his writings as he um, considered this. November 30th, 1745, he writes, they have almost always appeared much more affected with the comfortable 
than the dreadful truths of God's word. This is, this is odd. He says, that which has distressed many of them under conviction is that they found they wanted and could not obtain the happiness of the godly. At least they have often appeared to be more affected with this than with the terrors of hell. So let's unpack that, what he just said, because it's very odd. You might think, okay, great awakening, lots of people falling down with concern. How shall I be saved? You might think that this was simply because they talked about hell a lot and judgment a lot and things like that. So people were moved. Some, someone who is more skeptical might, if you're more skeptical, you might say this is just like emotional manipulation. And what David Brainerd is saying here is what appeared to him was that Usually, the things that would bring about this great sense of concern was not discussions of the terrors of hell, but actually of the joy, of the comforts of God. He said it was the sweet verses that would bring people to their knees. As if they would understand that there's a happiness here that I don't have. And that would somehow spark a realization that they were not with God. That's very, very interesting to me. And to me, it tells me more that this is a work of God. This isn't a work of the manipulation of a skilled orator. This is the work of God. And it's not just that word concern that I noticed happens again and again and again and again and again. There's another word that happens again and again and again and again in his writings as he discusses his ministry. And it's the word comfort. Remember how I said he knew these low, low, lows and these high, high, highs of ecstasy? He would describe that also, how the Spirit of God would fall on people and at times they would be shaken and they would know they would need a Savior and other times the Spirit of God would fall and the people together would experience what he calls joy unspeakable. March 9th, 1746 while we were singing, there was one individual who I may venture to say, if I may be allowed to say so much of any person I ever saw, was filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and could not but burst forth in prayer and praises to God before us all with many tears, crying, sometimes in English and sometimes in Indian. Oh, blessed Lord, do come, do come. Oh, do take me away. Do let me die and go to Jesus Christ. When she had a little recovered herself, I asked her if Christ was now sweet to her soul, whereupon turning to me with tears in her eyes and with all the tokens of deep humility I ever saw in any person, she said, I have many times heard you speak of the goodness and the sweetness of Christ, that he was better than all the world. But oh, I knew nothing what you meant. I never believed you. I never believed you. But now I know it is true. I want to tell you that when I read this, I feel um, I'm going to say it this way. We are not in a time of revival right now. That's what I feel when I read this. I can see signs of God moving, yes. But this of people being so pressed in mass for need of salvation and, and coming to him one after another. I need a savior. I need a savior. Help me through this. And, and in mass, people crying out. I don't, 
don't see that now. And people experiencing this joy unspeakable, I'll be honest, I don't see it now. And that is up to God. I believe that. I believe that God can pour out his spirit in ways that he wants, when he wants. I believe that. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and we celebrate that. And I'll just say it that way, that the Lord can do as he wills. Um, on a smaller scale, I've seen these things. Don't get me wrong. Like I say, I myself experienced great concern for my soul, and I've, I've known ecstasies of the Lord. And I've discoursed with other people who have walked this road. God is still working. But the parts of his narrative that I can't relate with was the, the degree to which that happens to groups of people and to be almost a daily occurrence. That I can't relate with. And that's why I say this time of revival was unique. And it is fitting for God's people to desire that. I think it's fitting for God's people to acknowledge we're not in that. But oh, what would it be like if we were to have salvation sweep across Montreal, Quebec. Okay. Uh, so I say he was a stranger and a foreigner, having not received what was promised. Well, let me unpack that, uh, because I really do think in his life, you really see what it means to be a stranger and a foreigner, as Abraham said that he was. Um, well, he was a, a foreigner in a literal sense. He, he says that he traveled uh, 3,000 miles during these few years of ministry among the indigenous people. And remind you, that was before cars, so that's, that's quite a bit. Um, but consider this. Thursday, November 22nd, 1744. I came on my way from Rockcletus to Delaware River, was very much disordered with a cold and pain in my head. About six at night, I lost my way in the wilderness and wandered over rocks and mountains, down hideous steeps through swamps and most dreadful and dangerous places, and the night being dark so that few stars could be seen. I was greatly exposed, cold and distressed with an extreme pain in my head, attended with sickness at my stomach so that every step I took was distressing to me. I had little hope for several hours together, but that I must lie out in the woods all night in this distressed case. But about nine o'clock, I found a house through the abundant goodness of God and was kindly entertained. So he just talks about being lost in the woods and cold and dark and how this would happen to him often. Hear what he says next. I have frequently been exposed and sometimes laying out the whole night but God has preserved me and blessed me in his name. Such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven the sweeter. Formerly, when I was thus exposed to cold rain and such, I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now, these have less place in my heart through the grace of God and my eye is more to God for comfort. This speaks to me so much, if you hear what he's saying. So many times, 
I've experienced hardships, and his hardships are going to get worse, by the way, much worse. So many times, he says, I experienced hardships, and earlier, what I would do when I was on the road, and I was cold, and I was wet, I would just think about being home in a warm fire. And he said, but through the grace of God, I stopped doing that, and I found a greater comfort. But now these things, the warm house and the warm fire, they have a less place in my heart. Still some. Still looks forward to that. He says less place in his heart, though. And he looks to God. I'm reminded of what Jesus said here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The thing that you... Think about in hard times and cold times and dark times. If only I had this, if only this, I'm waiting for this, I'm longing for this. This is what's going to make me happy. To be a Christian means it's him and his promises and his kingdom, the land of promise, the comfort of God. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what it means to be a stranger and a foreigner. Jesus said it this way. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Meaning, in this world, if you're going to follow me, your home's not going to be here. Your place of comfort, place of rest, when you're cold and when you're dark, you're not going to be able to set your heart on a warm home with a fireplace. That's not going to suffice. It's not going to satisfy. You're going to follow me, and you're going to learn. That what, what David Brainerd says is he was weaned from the world. You're going to learn this way of Christ. It's often hard. Oh, beloved, it's often hard. But you're going to learn how to find rest and joy and satisfaction and comfort in a home that is not here. Well, um, like I say, his hardships got worse. And on August 20th, 1746, it's the first time he describes um, coughing up blood. August 20th, having lain in a cold sweat all night, I coughed up much bloody matter this morning and was under great disorder of body and not a little melancholy. But what gave me some encouragement was I had a secret hope that I might speedily get a dismission from earth and all its toils and sorrows. Um, if you don't know, this is a, a clear sign of tuberculosis, also called consumption. Um, and uh, you see for a while him writing about feeling sick, but over, um, for the next year, it's gonna become more pronounced. September 27, 1746. Spent this day as well as the whole week past under a great degree of bodily weakness, exercised with a violent cough and a considerable fever. I had no appetite for any kind of food, could not retain it on my stomach, and I frequently had little rest in my bed owing to pains in my breast and back. I was able, however, to ride over to my people about two miles every day and take some care of those who were at work upon a small house for me to reside in among the Indians. So this is just the mental picture here that I have. He's got a little home, 
among the indigenous people whom he dwells. Uh, Abraham owned nothing other than the gravesite. But the Hittites said, you're a prince of God. We recognize you to be a prince of God. And you read David Brainerd and you understand this is a man who is indeed a prince of God. The scriptures say, what we are has not yet been revealed. Here is a prince of God, often depressed, coughing up blood, dying, living in a small little house. It doesn't look like a prince of God. A prince of God should be in very well health and live in a palace. What we are has not yet been revealed. It will be. It will be, but, but not yet, as Abraham and Sarah greeted it from afar, having not yet received. Thus far, David Brainerd has not yet received the things that he sets his heart on. He writes, I was sometimes scarce able to walk and never able to sit up the whole day through the week, was calm and composed and but little exercised with melancholy as in former seasons of weakness, whether I should ever recover or no seemed very doubtful, but this was many times a comfort to me that life and death did not depend upon my choice. I was pleased to think that he who is infinitely wise had the determination of the matter. I had little strength to pray, none to write or read, and scarce any to meditate, but through divine goodness, I could with great composure look death in the face and frequently with sensible joy. Oh, how blessed it is to be habitually prepared for death. You see, that's what happens when your treasure is not among this fallen world. Um, to be a pilgrim, a, a, a traveler, and a foreigner, your home is not here. April 21st, 1747, I set out on my journey for New England in order, if it might be the will of God, to recover my health by riding, getting some fresh air. And this was all the providence of God to bring him back to, to New England. Um, there he would, um, he sadly will never return to his beloved uh, people um, among the, the tribe. Um, his health would not recover. But when he returned to New England, he met uh, someone he was previously uh, acquainted with who would sometimes open up his home to travelers and such. And that man was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards writes how he was very impressed with, with this man, the character of this man. He says a number of things about him. One thing he says that struck me is, when David Brainerd prayed, he prayed from the fullness of his heart. He was struck with the depth of life that this young man had. And mind you, at this time, he's 28 years old, David Brainerd. And so Jonathan Edwards welcomes him into his home. At that time, uh, Edwards' 17-year-old daughter, Jerusha, uh, became David's nurse, a young woman who was called the flower of the family. Uh, she was devoted to God and cherished by all. Um, I'll say more about her a little later. But she became his nurse. Um, 
About a month before David died, Edwards writes this, Saturday, September 5th. He was unexpectedly visited by his brother, Mr. John Brainerd, who came to see him from New Jersey. He was much refreshed by this unexpected visit, this brother being peculiarly dear to him. And he seemed to rejoice in a devout and solemn manner to see him and to hear the comfortable things which he brought concerning the state of his, of his dear congregation of Christian Indians. Now catch this part. A circumstance of this, un, 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 a circumstance of this unexpected visit of which he was exceedingly glad, was that his brother brought him some of his private writings from New Jersey, and particularly his diary, which he had kept for many years past. Consider the providence of God here. A month before he dies, his brother comes unexpectedly, and he brings him his diary that he had written for years. And now, not only is it in the hands of David Brainerd, a month before he dies, but it's in the hands of Jonathan Edwards, who would go on to publish it. This story that we're reading, it's, it's God's story, isn't it? Um, Edwards writes, David once told me that he had formerly longed for the outpouring of the Spirit of God in the glorious times of the church and hoped that they were coming that he should have been willing to live to promote religion at that time if that had been the will of God. But he expressed on his deathbed a full persuasion that he should in heaven see the prosperity of the church on earth and should rejoice with Christ therein and the consideration of it seemed to be highly pleasing and satisfying to his mind. So much his heart was set on more of this revival that he was experiencing he wanted so much more, so much more outpouring. And this was very often his heart's cry, that the whole world would know this salvation. Here we have written his last words in his diary, written just several days before he died. David writes, My soul was this day at turns sweetly set on God. I longed to be with him, that I might behold his glory. I felt sweetly disposed to commit all to him, even my dearest friends, my dearest flock, my absent brother, and all my concerns for time and eternity. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. It's the last last of his written words, and you see the two things that he longed for that he did not receive in the flesh at that time. To be with Jesus, to physically be with Jesus in the land of promise. He greeted it from afar, but he did not yet receive it. And the other thing, and this truly amazes me, the evangelization of the world the world to know this goodness of God, this thing that has been driving him since 1739. For the world to know the goodness of God, this is what he longed for so much, though he did not see its fulfillment. But catch this. Some of these names you might recognize. David Livingston, known as Africa's greatest missionary. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot, the missionary whose life has inspired millions, and he gave his life for the tribal people of Ecuador. 
William Carey, who went to India, known as the father of the modern mission movement. <laughs> Virtually all missionaries sent out since William Carey has, in a lot of ways, uh, followed that model. Robert Murray McShane of Scotland, Andrew Murray of South Africa, who I myself have greatly inspired by. John Wesley, thousands of churches planted. Un, uh, so many people brought to salvation through him, I don't even know what to say. Um, Charles Spurgeon, most quoted preacher there is. And of course, Jonathan Edwards. All these people, what they had in common is, they said and wrote that they were greatly inspired by the life of David Brainerd. I guess what I'm trying to say is his suffering was not in vain. Um, what he longed for, he did not receive in his life. Like Abraham and Sarah, as we read about their graves, and the only, the only promise that they received was a gravesite when God promised them the land. Ah, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Jerusha, his nurse, 17 years old. Um, there's reason to believe that there was a special love between her and David. Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards writes some of his last words. He actually spoke to Jerusha. And he said, if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I could not bear to part with you. But we shall spend a happy eternity together. Four months later, out of the blue, Jerusha um, came down with a fever and five days later died. Um, just before her 18th birthday. And... Uh, and you can travel to New England now and you can see David Brainerd's gravestone and right next to it, you can see um, Jerusha's father buried her right next to David. And this is what I want to say. If that's the end of the story and David and Jerusha are not going to wake up, it's a terrible story. It's a terrible story of someone setting their heart on something and living for something and seeing something from afar that was only a figment of his imagination and just a false tale of religion. <clears throat> and if Abraham, who's buried next to Sarah in the tomb of the Hittites, if that's the end of the story and they're not going to get up, it's nothing. It's nothing of value. Um, all right, I want to read you one more verse before we close. Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And we're going to read it through uh, the next chapter of verse 5. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Um, let us be inspired by Abraham, Sarah, and this man, David Brainerd, who learned how to fix his eyes on what is eternal. And I say this in a way to God as much as I say it to you. Now the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Um, the comfort that David would feel even as he was dying. He sometimes called it a pleasing pain. The comfort of the Spirit is our promise. And the way that I read in the Scriptures, it's a guarantee of the things to come. And perhaps this will challenge you the experience of the Holy Spirit is just that, an experience. And it is the mark of the Christian. 1 John chapter 4 says, By this we know that we abide in him, that he has given us his spirit. So I want to put this out to you. If you've never known the concern, the conviction of sin by the Spirit, if you've never known the comfort of the Spirit... I would encourage you not to say, well, that was just a time past. That was just something in the Bible. That was just something during the Great Awakening. I would encourage you to ask yourself, do you know him? Do you really know him? Is your religion of the dead kind? Or have you obtained this guarantee, this spirit that is a guarantee of our inheritance? I just, I just want to put that out there and also just put that out to God. The way that I read it is your spirit will fall. Father God, let us fix our eyes not on what is um, temporary, but what is eternal. And oh Lord, allow our comfort to be in you and in your promises more than it is in a home with a fire or anything else that the world can offer. Let our comfort and our hope be in you. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. I told you that was going to happen. Yeah, I, yeah, you did. <laughs> he was like, don't get the chairs out. You're not going to need them. I knew uh, <laughs> I was going to go over. I apologize. I know it's Mother's Day. We're going to do one question. So it's uh, anyone who has a question in here or if you have kids, yes, I see parents leaving to go get their kids. That's great. Um, if you have a question, just raise your hand and uh, we will have a mic come to you. Any questions? Okay, I have a question. Oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> I always try to have one in my pocket. Um, what do we do if we want that concern in our lives, but we don't feel it? 
Well, if we want to consider uh, David Brainerd's story, um, at the time uh, before, they, they say his conversion happened in, in 1739, there was, he was praying before then. Um, he was seeking God, even though he did not know the, the comfort of God at that point. There was a time of seeking before that. And, um, and I can tell you of my own life, before I first came to know this great concern for my soul and this great salvation, there was also a time of speaking, seeking spiritual truth. Um, so I would say, look for him. Look for him through prayer. Look through him through reading the Bible. Look for him. Because um, remember, Jesus did say, all who seek, find. We're going to pray and then continue on with our service. Father, thank you f so much for today and for that message that we just heard. I pray that you would increase our trust in you, in the things that are happening in our lives, Lord, the things that we want to see but aren't seeing or the things that are happening and we're not sure what's going on. I pray that we would look to you. I pray that we would trust in you. I pray that we would have um, faith that you are working even if we can't see how it'll, it'll all work out. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith in, uh, in what you've done for us through Jesus and how you've saved us and how we have that as a free gift and not something that we have to strive for or work for. Father, I pray that you would give us concern not only for our own godliness, but also for um, the people who don't know you yet, Lord, that we would have our eyes open to the reality that their souls are lost and that we would want to share that our lives would preach that our words would preach father that we would share them and your love share with them the, your love and your your salvation that's so available to them I pray this in jesus name amen